Good morning, everyone. Um, we, this morning, we're returning back to the book of Luke. And I'll be looking uh, at chapter 2, verses 41 through 51. You'll find that on page 858 in your pew Bible, if you're utilizing a pew Bible. That is page 858. This is God's holy and inerrant word, so let us give careful attention to it. Verse 41, now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. And when he was 12, that is Jesus, years old, they went up according to custom. And when the feast was ended, as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents did not know it, but supposing him to be in the group, they went a day's journey. But then they began to search for him among their relatives and acquaintances, and when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem, searching for him. After three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard were amazed at his understanding and his answers. And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. And he said to them, why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? And they did not understand the sayings that he spoke to them. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth and, and was submissive to them. And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. Our glorious heavenly father. We just sung corporately that we lift our eyes up to the hills from where our help comes from. You are indeed our help. And even now through this particular text, we ask that you would open our eyes to the greatness and the grandeur of our Lord, that you would guide our hearts into thinking like Christ, that you would glorify yourself in and through us this hour, all look to the praise of your glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you're like me, and I know that some of you definitely are, then there are certain things in the Bible that cause, that is at least initially, a great disconnect between what you read in it and how you understand things to be. And the thing is, no matter how much you come to the knowledge of what's true, that disconnect still manages to ride with you because of maybe your upbringing or some other reasons. Well, this is one of those passages for me. And so I was really glad when I found out that I would be preaching on this text because I knew it would provide another opportunity for me to wrestle with the questions that I've already been answered but still keep being there. And to be able to do it with my church family in a way that would benefit all of us. So now having said that, let me just go right ahead and tell you that the greatest disconnect that I have just happens to be related to what a great deal of scholars would assert to be the core and pivotal instruction of this passage. And that is Jesus' response to his parents. Here in our passage, we see that after Mary asked the question, why have you treated us so? Jesus answered her by saying, why were you looking for me? 
Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? Now, many of you know or might remember me sharing about how bad of a kid I was. I, I was mainly, it was mainly due to a lack of impulse control. If my mind told me to do it, there was a high probability I was going to do it. Get on the school bus, ride to school, but don't go to class. Instead, go hang out. Done. Go to the library and permanently, permanently borrow library books. Done. Drink everything in the house that's mine and then proceed to drink everything that's not mine. Done. This was the type of stuff that I did when I was 12. But here's the thing. The one thing I never saw anyone in my family do, including me, was verbally disrespect our parents, caregivers, teachers, or anyone in authority. I had a friend. His name was Kurt. We used to call him Curdy. One day we were playing in front of his house and his mother called out to him, Curdy, and he answered, what? I was like, I almost died. I could not believe that anyone was allowed or could answer their parent like that. And so you can imagine when I came to this text my first time and, and times after that and I saw Jesus' response to his mother, I thought, how is that not a sin. How is that, that black talk, how is that not a sin? Does, doesn't the fifth commandment say to honor your mother and father? Doesn't Ephesians 6, 1 say, children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. And again, follow that up with honor your father and mother. And to cap it off, when I was in the military, I couldn't talk to anyone like that who was over me. What in the world then is going on here? Well, brothers and sisters, as you'll see, I, I needed to take off my cultural and environmental garments of worldly understanding and ask the question we are now going to ask ourselves. What can we learn from this text? Not can, what can we read into it, but what can we take from this? And before I propose to answer that question, here's a, a statement I've clearly come to agree with without any reservations. The more you study about Christ, the more you'll see the height of wisdom, knowledge, and understanding. And the more you come to appreciate him, and like everyone in this text, be astonished by him. And so with those words behind us, here are three things that I would propose. There's so much, but here are three things that I'll propose for us to learn this morning from this text. A good example of godly parenting, a great example of godly thinking, and a grand example of Christian living. First, a good example of godly parenting. Now notice I didn't say perfect, I said godly parenting, but not perfect parenting, okay? Soon you'll see why I'm making that distinction clear. Our text tells us that both Mary and Joseph Jesus' parent went up to Jerusalem every year at the Feast of Passover. That trip to Jerusalem would have been an 80-mile trip from Nazareth, a trip that would take somewhere between three and four days. How many of you want to drive or walk for that many days to get to church next Sunday? By law, the Jewish men were required to attend the Feast of Passover, but the women weren't. A woman was therefore considered to be very 
devout, all about God if she was of mind to attend. So the text tells us that they stayed, also tells us that they stayed until the end of the feast. And according to some scholars, that wasn't always the case for other families. So God, in his wisdom then, placed our Lord in a home where the hearts of the people in it were devoted to him. The scriptures tell us that we are to raise our children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, and that is exactly what our Lord's parents did. They tried to the best of their abilities to expose him to the means of grace that God had provided for his spiritual growth. Now, in all you're doing for God and, and your family, when you try to become or be devout, don't forget things happen. And this text reminds us of that. It was no different for this devout family. A passage tells us as they were returning from the feast, the boy Jesus, and there's emphasis here on boy, not God, not Messiah, boy. Luke is telling us or emphasizing that Jesus had an ordinary childhood and experienced an ordinary upbringing. The boy Jesus stayed behind. He volitionally stayed behind in Jerusalem and his parents did not know. How could such a thing happen, you ask? Well, it was customary for large groups to travel together for safekeeping, for security, and for purposes of fellowship. In these groups, it was also customary for the men to be on one end and for the women to be on the other end. And so in this case, it was quite conceivable that both parents thought that Jesus was with the other parent. And so at the end of the journey, then the nuclear family would come back together. And it was at this point that, that Mary had her home alone moment. She was like, Jesus, Joseph, Joseph, we left Jesus. Some of you older know what I'm talking about. So they head back to Jerusalem. And our text says that after three days, they found him in the temple. Now, let me quickly say that three days in our text should rightly be understood as one day going away from Jerusalem, one day heading back to Jerusalem, and a part of the third day went by looking for and finding him. Anyhow, they, they find him in the temple, and our text tells us that he's sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. Now, I don't want you to, to make the mistake of thinking, oh, that was because he's God, uh, you know, and the reason they were astonished, uh, these folks were astonished is because they were dealing with God. No, no, no. This is actually what it looks and sounds like when an individual is fully untethered from sin and therefore in an unhindered relationship with God. What it looks like when every intent of one heart gravitate towards the one who loves them most and who they in turn love the most. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. We hear the apostle James saying in James 4.8. In James 1.5, we also hear him saying, if any one of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach and it shall be given to him. So what we in effect have here at, at the tender age of 
12 years old is the perfect embodiment of Psalm 1-2, an individual whose primary concern is God's word and in it he meditates day and night. He or she lives in, through, and by it. That is God's word. It is their all in all, reflecting the very thing that God had called them to, to love him with all their heart, their mind, their soul, and their strength. God promises that a person whose heart is like that will be filled with rivers of wisdom, and not worldly wisdom, but that wisdom that comes from above, the type that he abundantly distills to those that love him. And this is the backdrop and core pivotal point of this sermon. This is, and it's a great example, which leads us to a great example for godly thinking. Now at this point, it might be helpful to remember what I said about Mary. She was a good example, but not a perfect one. This flies in the face of, of uh, Catholicism, but well, her imperfection, like ours, shows up in this text. After three days, she finds Jesus in the temple and is amazed and astonished by what she sees and hears. Her son is asking the type of questions and making the types of statements that probably cause her to think stuff like, wow, when we were doing our devotions, he was not only listening, but his application and ability to connect to what we were saying to the rest of scriptures is far above her comprehension, Joseph. She's like, Joseph, did you hear what he just said? Joseph was like, yeah, I ain't teaching that. Yeah. At this point, Mary, at this point now, Mary should have remembered the voice of the angel Gabriel telling her that she would be with child through the work of the Holy Spirit. Remember that she heard the child would be great, that he would be called the son of the most high God, and his name would be called the Lord saves, mean Jesus. She heard all these things. She experienced all these things. She should have remembered the words of Simeon and Anna in the temple, and she should have remembered the Magi's visit, and her response would have then been visit a different. But brothers and sisters, before we get tempted to join the chorus of, yeah, that's right, she should have remembered those things. Think about this. There was a 12-year gap between what transpired in our text and the time when she heard those things. And if we here right now, all of us, are willing to be honest, many of us sometimes leave church on Sunday and would have forgotten what we heard on Monday, tomorrow. The disciples, the apostles, walked with Jesus for three years. He kept telling them the same things over and over and over, but they through either did not understand or just plain forgot. So much so that in Matthew 17, Jesus seemed to have been frustrated and he's like, man, how long do I have to be with you? You see, it's evidence when it comes to us, to the apostle, to Mary. It's evidence of the fact that our minds have been tainted by sin. It's the doctrine of total depravity. None of us are as bad as we could be, but all of us have been tainted by sin. Our minds then are now prone to being turned inwards and operating in an under 
the sun mode. You heard that two weeks ago when Emilio preached to us that we have a tendency to look at things under the sun. And you'll hear more about this in a second. So heaven is not our focus. Earth and our earthly desires are. Now, Pastor Bruce Larson does a great job of addressing this heavenly versus earthly mindset. He does so by introducing three dimensions of living. You might notice that I named the sermon this. Two of which should resonate. Two of these should resonate with all of us. He introduces the topic by writing, I think there are only three dimensions in which it is possible for any of us to live our lives. There is first of all one-dimensional living, that is self-centered living, where you are the center of things wherever you go. All kinds of people around us are living a one-dimensional, one-dimensionally, he goes on to say, wherever they go, in the classroom, at home, on the job, they are the sun, and the rest of us are seen as a kind of solar system revolving around them. I'm sure you know at least a few people like this. They direct and organize the lives of their families and friends. They come into a party and take over. They tell the jokes and suggest the games. They relate their latest exploits. And depending on their degree of charisma, or either tedious or, either tedious or delightful. It was said of Teddy Roosevelt that he had to be the bride at every wedding and the corpse at every funeral. Brothers and sisters, Adam and Eve plunged the entire world into sin because of this type of thinking and orientation. For you see, our behavior springs forth from our thoughts, and theirs at the point of temptation was turned inward, self-centered. One of the things that, that, that just so frustrates me and makes me sad is what I call the two-year-old syndrome. You know, a two-year-old, you notice if you had a two-year-old and you take the cookie away from them and, and you do it in the sanctuary or on a plane or whatever, the two-year-old, when they don't get what they want, they'll start crying and complaining and whining and so on and so forth, right? Well, it is so sad to see a 20, 30, 40, 50, 60, 70-year-old because of sin act that same way. They did not grow in wisdom. They did not grow in the way Jesus grew and grew out of that. And it's so sad to see that. But Christ can set a person free from being one-dimensional. Now, regarding two-dimensional living, Larson wrote, Next, we move up to a much more realistic view of life. Two-dimensional living. You are aware of the people around you. It's political living. They motivate you and you motivate them. Two-dimensional living is a trade-off. It's the unspoken covenant between parent and child, husband and wife, employee and boss. It's the I will if you will of life. You are doing your part and the other person, listen, had better do his or her part. I laugh at your joke and you are obliged to laugh at mine no matter how bad it is. Two-dimensional marriage, he says, has a lot of built-in peril. Perhaps one party is perceived as not doing his or her part. Perhaps he or she doesn't even understand what that part is. A lot of us who are parents tend to live two-dimensional lives with our children. We patronize them. We expect certain behavior and withhold our approval if we don't get it. 
We know what's best. Now, brothers and sisters, this is the second dimension. The second dimension is what Mary, that's what Jesus' mother was operating through when she said, Son, why have you treated us so? Now, if I could have been a fly on the wall of, of Mary's head, I could, I could hear her mind thinking, all the ways that we made, we try to make life for you. I get up early every morning, just like Proverbs 31 tells me that I'm supposed to do, just to make sure that your breakfast is ready. We don't ask for much. How can you treat us like that? I could see Mary doing that. And folks, when the trials of life come against us, just like when Mary encounters something, when the trials of life come against us, this is exactly how and where we are prone to operate from. This second dimension, every single relational spat or conflict, husband, wife, parent, child, boss, employee, comes from operating at this level. For you see, even the one-dimensional self-centered person must interact with other people. But there's good news. There's a better way. And here, by and through his response to his mother, a 12-year-old growing in wisdom and stature is teaching or reminding us of that fact. So you ask, Dean, what is the question? Why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I would be in my father's house? What does that teach us? What, how, how is it that this is showing us something? Well, I'm glad you asked. Here are a few things. First, Jesus knew he was the son of God. He knew, secondly, that he was, <clears throat> he knew God relationally. He didn't just know of him, but he was intimately related to him. And third, and the only one I'm going to briefly comment on as it relates to where I'm going with this, and I've already alluded to, Jesus, even at 12 years old, is the perfect example of three-dimensional living. That is all his actions and relationships as he grows in wisdom and stature will be lived out in light of his relationship with God. Listen to Bruce Larson's take on this. Every relationship is three-dimensional. When we are aware that God is the, the hub of every relationship, we go beyond two-dimensional or political living to affirming that God is our Father is a part of every encounter and situation. That third person is God himself. Therefore, we no longer need to take responsibility for the other person's behavior or performance. Instead, we trust that situation to the third person in the triangle. We say, Father, here's my boss or my friend, my child or my parent. He left our spouse. I guess he didn't want his wife to hear this. When we are aware of God at work in the other person's life, we can stop trying to manipulate or coerce him or her. That, brothers and sisters, is the way our Father wants us to think and live, three-dimensionally. Lawson refers to God as the third person in the triangle. I would argue that he always needs to be the first person in the triangle. And, just, and at just 12 years old, just 12 years old, a young boy, Jesus is again showing us that that's the mindset that we're supposed to have. And then he goes from that to perfectly demonstrating it. My last point quickly, a grand example of Christian living. But first, 
There are plenty of imperatives. Let me go back. There are plenty of imperatives in Scripture that call us to move from two-dimensional and one-dimensional to three. Think of Ephesians. Husband, love your wife as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Wives, submit to your husband as unto the Lord. Children, obey your parents in the Lord. Servants, obey your masters. All of it again is in the Lord. God is calling us and telling us that we are supposed to move from that which is natural to the fallen man, one-dimensional, two-dimensional living, to become a person who lives with God at the forefront of their mind and in their character. So now a grand example of Christian living. Jesus shows us. Look at verse 51. It reads, And he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them, and his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. Now quickly again, I would submit to you that both Jesus and his mother are giving us good examples of Christian living. Mary particularly so by humbling herself in the face of her lack of understanding. Jesus' example, however, it's what's grand. Think about this. It is now clear to us that he knew who, his, who he was, the son of the most high God. He knew his mission better than his parents even then. And if ever there was someone and he knew the instruction manual, the Bible, better than his parents. So if there was ever someone who had the right to demand his own way, it would have been him. But here we find our text saying he was submissive to them, submissive to those who knew less than him, to those who were clearly sometimes flawed in their thoughts and thinking. By nature, we are not like that, brothers and sisters. In fact, we are quite the opposite. Commenting on this, Philip Reichen writes, and I'm going to end with this. We often struggle with submission. As children, we do not always want to obey our parents. As wives, we do not always want to respect our husbands. As workers, we do not always want to obey our bosses. As church members, we do not always want to listen to our pastors and elders. As citizens, we do not always want to follow our leaders. We are tempted to do exactly the opposite, to insist on our own way. Remember, Scripture says love does not insist on its own way. But God calls us to serve him by submitting to the people he has placed in positions of authority. Rather than struggling with this, Jesus embraced it. When we learn to embrace it the way that Jesus did, then we too will enjoy God's favor. Brothers and sisters, Jesus lived obediently all the way to the point of death. He knew that we were racked by sin. He knew that we were stuck, bound to live one and two dimensionally. And he knew that we needed to be reconciled to our Father. And so while we were yet sinners, he died for us and called us to himself. And if you are here this morning, I am telling you that Jesus Christ died for you and is calling you away from living one and two dimensionally to be that which you were created to and that is reconciled to your father in communion with him on a consistent and daily basis. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you 
for the example that our Lord set here in our passage. We thank you for his active obedience that he carried out his entire life. And here the only glimpse of his childhood to see a young man, a young child, not even coming to the age where he's bar mitzvahed or become a son of the covenant, but he is here as a young person and demonstrating uh, wisdom that none of us could say that we have perfectly. But we thank you that he died for us and we have his imputed righteousness. And now we can grow into his image and we therefore can walk in the light of your word submitting ourselves in the places that you've called us to, obediently walking before you, bringing glory to you. Strengthen us by the power of your spirit to do just that on a daily basis in all our spheres of influence, cause us to live three-dimensionally for your glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.